Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. It's good to see all of you here. These open-air services like this remind me something of what it must have been like in the days of Jesus Christ. You might have read some of the accounts from the first Great Awakening with George Whitfield, and he did preach from in some areas around Lancaster in the 1740s, but Benjamin Franklin in downtown Philadelphia at the time would try to estimate George Whitfield's crowd, and, you know, he'd not listen to the sermon very well, but pace off how big the crowd was and try to get a count. And there are, there are estimates that George Whitfield preached to more than 10,000 without amplification, some estimates of 20,000 or more. So I'm glad we have amplification. I don't have a powerful voice like that, but it's good to see you, some of you sitting up on the hill. And it's good to kind of try to transport ourselves back to the time of Christ because the account we're about to read is something that takes place outside and you just think of what it would have been like. We're going to read from Luke chapter 7 beginning at verse 11 this account of the miracle outside the gate of Nain and hear God's word as I read it to us. Soon afterward he, Jesus that is, went to a town called Nain And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. We come this evening to look at this amazing miracle of Jesus Christ that shows forth his glory. His life-giving resurrection power in this instance as he raises this young man from the dead. And as we look at what this miracle shows us about Christ, I would ask you to be thinking about this question. Who is this Jesus Christ? How have I responded to his claims on my life, to his testimony about who he is and what the scriptures tell us about him? And I would like us to look at our text under a couple of main points. The first is that Jesus meets a tragedy with compassion. And then Jesus shocks the crowd with his power and authority. 
And Jesus brings about a different ending of the story. And then we want to consider in conclusion the only fitting response. So those are our main points. And so we want to look first at Jesus meets a tragedy with compassion. The verse tells us that Jesus travels to Nain, this little town. It's not a major community, and probably it's gate. You know, they had gates in city and town walls. Probably this town had a decorative gate. It probably didn't have an actual wall, but that told you 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 were at the town. And Nain is located about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, where we were last Sunday night with the miracle that we heard preached about at the beginning of Luke 7. So about 20 miles Jesus had gone. And by the way, Nain is only about six miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So he's near his hometown. And we find in verse 11 that he went to this town and a great crowd was with him. Every once in a while on an Easter sunrise service, if you come, we tend to process down here after the Easter sunrise service in our cemetery up there. And it's kind of, it makes me feel like it must have been like to follow Jesus around. Usually the bagpiper leads us down here and there's breakfast down here afterwards. So everybody, you know, is on their way to a pancake breakfast. But it's kind of fun to walk down as a big crowd and the bagpipe leads the way. And so this great crowd followed Jesus, probably many of them 20 miles whether they came in one day or a few days, we're, we're not told. But this crowd is still following him, and the dis- disciples, of course, are all around him. Uh, and as they approach the town of Nain, another crowd is coming out to meet them. But the attitude and the mood of that crowd is much different. It's a funeral procession, we find. And... It's typical that people in that day in the Jewish tradition were buried the day they died. And when you read about the men carrying the, the, uh, the beer, B-I-E-R, or we would maybe say the coffin, but it wasn't a coffin like we think about it with sides and a top. It was more like a plank or a stretcher with the body on it and the body wrapped in a shroud of a certain kind. And so... This funeral procession comes out through the gates, and it is very likely that the person leading this procession, leading the casket, so to speak, would have been the widow, the young man's mother. And probably he was a teenager. And you can just imagine something of the full dimension of this woman's great loss. A widow, we're told. And so sometime before, we don't know whether it was a short time or a long time, she had walked this same route burying her husband. And now it's her only son, apparently her only child. And we can relate somewhat to the tragedy and the emotional pain and loss of losing a child. It's many um, experts in psychology and grief will say something about... um, Possibly losing a child is the greatest loss in this life. Uh, But certainly a very deep grief. 
But you have to add to that something that we don't experience as much in our society and that losing an only son like this would be also a great loss of protection and provision and security in your old age because really there weren't uh, there wasn't social security there wasn't uh, there weren't retirement accounts uh, your provision for your old age was that your children would take care of you typically so this woman leads the procession weeping as she came others probably um, mourning loudly maybe people playing music in some way all part of the mourning procession and surely we see something in her the universal tragedy of the human condition part of the sad result of the fallenness of this world in sin and all the repercussions of that first and foremost being death itself because the wages of sin is death no family is untouched by that grief and that agony. And so what we see is as Jesus and the great crowd following him approach her, he speaks to her. He notices her. And Luke records that he had great compassion for her. It says in verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Jesus takes the initiative and he can only say to her, do not weep, because he knows what he is about to do. If it weren't for that, how cruel it would have been to say to her, do not weep, because it was fitting and right that she grieve. But he knew what he was about to do. When Jesus saw her, his heart immediately went out to her in genuine compassion. I want us to stop and just dwell on that for a moment here is a man the God man and one of the primary characteristics of his life was an attitude of compassion to all around him Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 3 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief his characteristic response to people around him was to reach out to them with compassion and mercy. In other words, Jesus was not caught up in his own self-oriented concerns. He was not, he was, we're told he was not sent to be served, but to serve. Stop and think about that. How we all need the great mercy and the great compassion of Jesus Christ. Some of you might feel that you're pretty self-sufficient, that you have life pretty much in control the way you like it, and everything is fine with you, and you don't really need much from God, if there is a God, or maybe you feel like uh, maybe you just need a little help from time to time, but the truth is that Scripture portrays our need as desperate. We are in need of the compassion of Jesus Christ. We all tend to want life on our own terms. And when life is going well, it's easy for us to forget the Lord. And then when tragedy and hardship comes, it's easy for us to um, almost want to turn away from the Lord and to despair of life. But all of us desperately need Jesus Christ and his compassion. And above all, 
we need the free offer of his grace to us to forgive us of us of our sins and to bring us in a right relationship to himself through faith in his saving work. Jesus met this tragedy with compassion. But then secondly, we see Jesus shocks the crowd with his power and authority. In verse 14, we read there that he comes up to the funeral procession and then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. He came up and touched the stretcher or the plank where the body was. And maybe he had to do that to make sure that everybody stopped because he had something he wanted to do here. But that would have been a gesture that would have shocked the sensibilities of a typical Jewish individual because they would have known their Old Testament. They would have known that Numbers chapter 19 verse 16 said that according to the law, touching a dead body or anything associated with a dead body like that in a burial like this would render the person ceremonially unclean. And there were certain ramifications to that for a period of days that you had to do certain things and be purified until you could worship again with a covenant community. But Jesus is the Lord of life. He has power over death itself. He is not defiled or corrupted or contaminated by death. In fact, in, sense, in a sense, we see here a collision between the Lord of life and death itself. And there's no doubt as to who wins out. Jesus wasn't made ceremonially unclean. No, he made the dead man live. I was thinking about that when we sang the last verse of our hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, Slain by Death the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. That's the same kind of thing that we see happening here. And Jesus not only touches the bier, he also then speaks to the dead man, which would have been a ridiculous thing to do if it didn't have power to raise that man. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. I'd like to stop here. And reflect on, if you know your Old Testament at all, you might know that there are a lot of similarities going here between what Elijah did almost 900 years before this and what Jesus did. Because the parallels here between this raising of this young man from the dead and Elijah 900 years before to raising from the dead the son of the widow of Zarephath are striking. The Jews would have noticed this. And Luke picks up on this. Both were widows. Both lost their only son. Both were clearly grief-stricken. And we'll see that the language at one point is exactly the same. But one of the big differences between the account of Elijah and this account is what Elijah had to do. Elijah stretched himself over the boy three times and cried out to the Lord. In other words, there were these actions that Elijah was doing similar to when there was an instance when Elisha raised someone from the dead and he did took various actions. But for Jesus, all that he did was speak a word of command. He didn't even pray. He just spoke a word, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak. 
one who is greater than Elijah, much, much greater than Elijah. And Elijah was regarded as a very great prophet in the Jewish community. One far greater than Elijah is here. It's the Son of God himself, the Lord of life. The power and authority of Jesus Christ are clearly revealed in this account. And just think of it. As Jesus spoke to this young man, this dead body, arise. He had the power in so doing to reunite this young man's body to his soul that had already left. He reunited body and soul. Death divides body and soul. He had the power by speaking arise to make the cells of this man's body live again. It's unbelievable to think about. It's a true miracle. Some might be thinking, well, maybe he was only comatose. Maybe he hadn't really died. This is one of the typical objections to the miracles that the Bible records. But remember, the gospel writer that records this account, who investigated all of this, who is a Gentile who wasn't there, but went back and got eyewitness testimony, Dr. Luke was a medical doctor of the day. And yes, their medicine wasn't as advanced as ours, but still, he was using scientific methods and so forth. And for all of the resurrections that Jesus carried out in raising certain individuals from the dead, the daughter of Jairus, Lazarus, these three resurrections, in all of them, there were many witnesses. And in some of them, for example, Lazarus had been in the, in the grave four days. No, Luke was a careful observer, a careful historian. He stuck to the facts. And he notes this surprising fact here that the young man spoke. We're not told what he said or if what he said made any sense or if he just said something to his mom like he was normally waking up or something like that. But Luke recorded it. Jesus shocked them with his power and authority, this power over death itself. And when we think of what, what Jesus did, we can assert that no other religious leader or figure in the history of the world has ever done such a thing. Only Jesus Christ. The gospel that centers on the person of Jesus Christ is different from every other system of morality or man-made religion in the world because all other types involve us trying to be moral or do something or um, pay some kind of sacrifice or p price to get us in a, re a right relationship to God or the gods. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that Jesus is the Son of God who came to lay down his life for us to raise us up to God. What a tremendous gospel that is. Of course, this resurrection, as we call it, wasn't a mere resuscitation as if he were only half dead. No, this was a resurrection. This was a raising to the dead, of, of this man to the dead. But it was raising him to the dead, from the dead, knowing that he would die again. And these resurrections that Jesus Christ performed in these miraculous ways, the, the people all died eventually in their lives. The daughter of Jairus, Lazarus, and this young man all died eventually again. But 
they all prefigure the greater resurrection to come, that of Jesus Christ himself, rising triumphantly from the dead in a glorified way, never to die again. And that resurrection of Jesus is the prototype and the prefiguration of our resurrection as well, if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the gospel. Maybe you've read and thought about the immortality of the soul, and maybe you know that Scripture makes it clear that when we die, our souls immediately go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body, Scripture says, is to be present with the Lord. Paul can write, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But the scriptures teach even more beyond that. Not only do our souls go immediately into the presence of the Lord when we die, but there is the promise of future resurrection glory. Our bodies being raised from the dead, never to die again, to live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus is the Son of God with power to raise the dead and to save us from our sins. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus brings about a different ending of the story. The end of verse 15 says, make, adds this particular de- detail. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Do you hear the different ending of the story? We had a, an old owner old order burial the other year about 10 years ago there's a funeral home in the area this man who does old order burials and usually when we have a funeral in our church the hearse drives the body up to the hillside and we all follow in our cars some of us walk up there but in this particular case they used a casket that was very simple made of only wood and they used ropes to lower it down into the grave but the other feature was that the whole funeral procession walked up the hill following the casket up the hill. Can you imagine if somebody met us halfway up and said, would you stop for a minute? Can you imagine if somehow that person was raised from the dead? Can you, you know, a funeral has a certain tone to it. There's a grief, there's a loss. Uh, Even if it's someone who's lived a hundred years, there's still a loss. Death is still the last enemy. Can you imagine the tone of that crowd that was coming out of the gate of Nain when Jesus raised this young man from the dead? And then Luke says he gave him to his mother. And the wording in the Greek is the exact same language as 1 Kings 17, where Elijah gives his respective young man to the mother, the widow of Zarephath. It's the same word from the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Clearly, Luke was making a parallel here. And it reminds me of a sermon from last Sunday when Pastor Walker talked about 1 Thessalonians 4. And that beautiful verse, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the emphasis of that verse there is the we 
we who are alive will be caught up with them. Who is the them? Those who have died, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is highlighting the fact that if we've had loved ones who have died, we will be reunited with them. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And so we, all of us, will be with the Lord forever. The fact that Jesus give, gave this previously dead son to his mother is a preview of that great reunion day when we will all see Jesus when he comes in glory. Can you imagine the rejoicing which must have made this mother feel like her heart was going to burst? Her son is given back to her. There's, her whole life has changed again. She is filled with joy. The people who are with her, I'm sure, are rejoicing as well. Some of you have traditions of family reunions. Maybe the summer is typically a time for this, and maybe you enjoy it, maybe you don't. We have a tradition of Patty's side of having a somewhat of a family reunion every summer in Texas at this Christian camp that we go to, and we're all kind of half depressed this year that the camp is not going to open this year because of corona. No one's going to go down there. They're talking about having a Zoom meeting during camp, you know, to kind of reenact the family reunion, but it's just not the same. Family reunions are a time of rejoicing. Well, the reunion and the joy of that final day of the Lord and the reunion that will be will be like a traditional family reunion times a million. That's what we have to look forward to. And the very best part will be being reunited to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Being with the Lord together with all of God's people who are in Christ, who belong to Christ and have come to Jesus Christ by faith. The brokenness and the darkness and the tragedies of this life, which are very real and very grievous, those will be beyond our present capacity to understand how this will be, but they will be seen in a different way in light of the glory and the purposes of God. And we will be able to have eternal joy because God will have undone all the evil, all the brokenness, all the tragedies of this life. The raising of this woman's son is a preview and a prefiguration of that, the different ending of the story. And that brings us to our only fitting response. We see the people's response in verses 16 and 17. There we read that, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Two elements of their response. One is worship. This reverential fear seized them. They had a sense that God was at work, and, and they glorified God. So seeing the great acts and the great works of God should cause us to respond with glorifying him, praising him, thanking him, trusting him. And the other element was that they believed in Jesus in some way. 
Now, it's interesting what they said because it, again, brings back this theme of Elijah and says, they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. They really don't know who Jesus is, but the best they can do is, well, he must be a great prophet, at least like Elijah. And Luke, one of the themes of Luke as we study through this gospel is he is showing us again and again glimpses of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We saw how he was born. We saw that he was, he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see how he dies finally at the end and rises again. This is no mere prophet. This is the Son of God. And they say, God has visited his people. It had, been, it had been almost 900 years since a miracle like this had been done in Israel, since the prophet Elijah and the report spread about him. They just couldn't wait to tell everybody. We, we were out looking at lightning bugs the other night, and you know how you're looking at different parts of things. I was the only one that saw a shooting star, and I wasn't sure everyone was going to believe I saw it. You know, I saw a shooting star. I had to tell everybody. I've told a couple people that since then. It was a big event. I love shooting stars. How much more declaring the wonderful works of Jesus Christ if we have experienced his redemption let us tell those around us I can imagine this young man you know in old age still telling the story you know and talking to his grandkids have I told you about the day Jesus came to the gates of Nain yes granddad you told us that but tell us again you know it was wonderful. I don't remember any of it because I was dead, but it was great. I remember after it occurred and everybody told me what happened. How are we responding to Jesus Christ? The word of God testifies to who he is. His miracles testified. The eyewitnesses testified. There are a couple different ways to respond. One is just to ignore it or give lip service to the gospel, but then really live your life the way you want to and hold God at arm's length. Or maybe you even scoff and, you know, maybe you don't say this out loud, maybe just to your closest friends that you really don't believe any of it. I would ask you to be serious in thinking about your response to what the Bible says. The Bible has stood the test of time the Bible is God's inerrant, inspired word to us. Ask God to open your eyes to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is not only able to raise the physically dead, he is able to give spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead in their sins, in their apathy, in their self-absorption. That's the human nature, the sinful human nature we are all born into. Ask God, cry out to him to give you new life, to behold who Jesus Christ is, and then to trust in him and entrust your life to him, to ask him to save you from your sins and to give you new life in him. Jesus calls us by name and gives us spiritual life in him. He calls us by the gospel, and he so works 
in his compassion, with his power and authority to bring us to life as well. Let us pray. Father, we think of this account, we think of this day 2,000 years ago when a town was changed by the presence of Jesus Christ, and we know that you are still changing people's lives by an encounter with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Lord, so work in our lives. Strengthen us to show the works of comfort and compassion that Jesus showed, that we would be more like him in laying down our lives to serve those around us, to not be so engrossed in our own lives that we don't notice the needs in others' lives. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us by this miracle that you are a God who is at work in the most tragic situations of this life. And if there are those here this day who are struggling with deep suffering and great loss, we pray that you would pour in the oil of your Holy Spirit, the comfort of your spirit, and touch their lives. Strengthen them. Build us up as your people, we pray. We thank you for this time we've had to look at your word. Let us go away changed as your spirit works in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.